This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is the London FinTech Podcast, episode 147, brought to you in association with Smart Pension. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Anish Varma, founder of AIR, one of fintech's longest-standing credit rating firms who have scored over $10 billion of value at risk to date. Anish will tell us a little bit more about AIR later in the show. But today talks to us, I was about to say, about a far more interesting topic. I'm sure that he will show that AIR is far more interesting than this topic. But for the listeners, this is a far more interesting topic because we haven't particularly covered it, of being an entrepreneur in many countries around the world. What are the pros and what are the cons? What can we learn from it all in this Brexiting age? I believe that Anish has lived in 11 countries and founded businesses in four. So without much further ado, other than to note that he was the British Council's 2009 young entrepreneur, by now presumably the British Council's 2020 potential middle-aged entrepreneur. I don't know whether such a thing. And he was also nominated for the European Commission's Entrepreneur of the Year 2014, which I think was something to do with that EU. I forgot what the EU was, but there you go. Anyway, without further ado, let's dive in and find out what it's like being an entrepreneur in different countries and what all of you guys, regardless of which country you're in, can learn from different approaches in different ways of doing things. Hi, Anish. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Mike, for having me here. You were just saying, actually, in terms of leading in, that our previous guest, the previous episode, was Charlie Dellingpole of the wonderful Comply Advantage, and you and he go back a little way. Charlie you taught him everything he knew. Almost, I would say so, and let's see if he backs that up. Yeah, Charlie and I used to actually work together at JP Morgan f- almost 14, 15 years ago, sat quite close to each other, and he's, he's been somebody I've kept in touch with. He came out to my wedding. I have some incriminating pictures of him, if the world wants to see those. <laughs> uh, excellent, excellent, excellent. That's the kind of thing we like on this show, actually. That'll, that'll be very good for the show notes. It'll be very good for getting the uh, circulation of this one higher. Now, leading into all this stuff about you've lived in um, most of the countries of the world at one time or the other. Uh, I noticed a, a curious phrase, which shows my lack of education, on your LinkedIn, which is that you are a third culture citizen. Now, I've heard a sort of second world or second life, but I've, I'm a bit behind the time, so I'm not sure what the third world, third life is. So, so what is the third culture? Which of the 11 did you pick as your third culture? So I guess it originates from a phrase I first heard, which was third culture kids which probably relates to people who either have parents of one nationality, they speak a different language, and they're growing up in yet another country, so they're third-culture kids. I believe Obama himself used to refer to himself at times as a third-culture kid. And from there, I said, you know, I can't use the word kid anymore because I'm hopefully grown up now, so I guess I have to use the word citizen, which is a little bit more of a worldly word. In this country, you're not a citizen. You're a subject. (laughs) We're we're not citizens, as we found out last year. (laughs) That is true. That is true. Yeah, in my case, obviously, I, I have Indian heritage. That's that's part of my DNA. It's less obvious over the microphone. People over the microphone might think you've got American heritage. Yes, and that's the, I guess, maybe the second culture that's kind of seeped in over the years because my dad was a diplomat, so we moved around all over the world. And in most cases, you go to an American school and you pick up much more of the American vernacular. And then I studied in the U.S., worked in the U.S. for a bit. And obviously still keep a relationship there. But the U.K. has been my home for a majority of the last uh, 14 years. And 
you know, I am now a subject of the Queen, very proud to be, but I am also a migrant, which is a positive and negative word these days. I'm, I'm a legal migrant, don't worry, but I do hope that you know, migrants are not seen in a negative light in the coming future. Yes, we've touched on this on the podcast before, most particularly with Christian Faye's of Lindenvest. And I think it was still in the phase when Blair's policies were busy importing millions of voters. So I think in the space of not much more than 15 years, six and a half million people came to the country, which is more than the whole population of Sweden or Finland or something like that. And uh, Britain has always been very culturally open, or at least from the uh, 16th century it has, when it was busy going around the world. And, and actually, this lasted until the 1980s. When I was at Climeworks, the International Fund Management Division, which I was a part of, the people there were never happier when they were buzzing off to somewhere completely different and immersing themselves in a, in a far more interesting culture. So Britain has always been very open and very accepting. And I think it still is these days. I mean, London doesn't, as John Cleese famously said, doesn't feel English anymore. It's a very multicultural City. I think the kind of pushback to the extent that there has been a pushback in places is that the millions of recent immigrants haven't really been evenly spread out around the country. So, for example, the East End, when I was a kid, it was all EastEnders, how you doing, mate, all this kind of stuff. <laughs> and I think now, I think it was Newnham, I saw something the other day, only 8% of Newnham is ethnically wow. British. So it doesn't happen to the liberal classes who sort of say, oh, these racist plebs or something like that. But... There's been a lot of kind of reverse colonisation. And the crazy thing, going back to Christian Faye's, is that we still have this developer shortage. And Christian has said he'd had three examples where he'd got overseas people... Because what does immigrant mean? It's ridiculous. Britain is 1% of the world. So if you say foreigner, you just mean 99% of humanity. <laughs> How can you generalise about them? You know, that's, that's crazy. But anyway, so he had some, some of these foreigners, you know, 99% of the world, three of whom had got degrees, three of whom had got jobs, three of whom would contribute to the economy immediately, and the Home Office wouldn't give visas while it was immigrating millions of people who were less economically productive. So the interesting thing for me um, is that Boris was trailing last year sort of some points-based system, yeah. which Australia's had for a while, and no doubt I'll be mis- full of mistakes as well, but the idea has clearly got to be that you don't want your borders shut and no one ever come in, because we don't get interesting people like you that know all sorts of stuff and will actually help the economy, but at the same time, of course, this idea of open borders is complete madness. When you've got a welfare system, well, why wouldn't you come here? But how do you see it? So look, I am a positive, I, I hope I'm a positive influence and a positive case study of somebody coming in, bringing in not just intelligence, but hopefully capital and a business, all my three... Creating employment, creating, creating employment, taxes and... Yeah. And hopefully putting UK on the map for what we're trying to do as the home for a company like Air. And, you know, our aim, and I'd be very public with this, is to show that, you know, a global company can be built out of the UK, ideally London here. And that's been rare because a lot of times we build companies and we're happy to sell them off to our American counterparts. And that's not something I want to do here. Yes, absolutely. And now that we're going back to the future and being independent again, it's even more important that we create businesses entrepreneurially and that Britain becomes a place where we can do business. And as you say, do it on a, a global scale, which also Charlie is obviously trying to do as well. I mean, I think, you know, to your point about what people think about migrants, the dumbed-down level of discussion in the media or social media is moronic. The phrase migrant means, to me, means one of the 99% of humanity <laughs> that wasn't born here. Yeah, that's a real good stat. 
1% of the world is the UK, that's it. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, sorry, am I supposed to say the other 99% are good or bad or <laughs> I like them or I don't like them? It's, it's completely mad. And then also you go on to say something which was equally sort of uh, Greek to me. You are, I'm going to get the pronunciation of this one wrong, you are a proud Lehigh alumni? That's my university. At least it, at least it rhymes. So where is Lehigh? It's in a relatively small town in Pennsylvania called Bethlehem. Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. I That's the Bethlehem one. Bethlehem somewhere else. And uh, obviously its claim to fame is it used to be a steel mill and a lot of the steel that came out was used in the American railroad system and therefore it has a lot of heritage. However, talking about globalization, in the 80s and 90s, slowly that steel mill town started dying because once again, China and India took over. So it is a, a town, unfortunately, where its heritage is probably grander than its present. But for me, especially that time, it really for the first time was the evidence of, wow, globalization can also have a pretty harsh impact on a lot of people who thought, you know, steel's gonna be around forever. As I mentioned beforehand, the, in terms of the world changing and identities and things like this, my children's mother was from proper communism from Czechoslovakia when the war was still there. You know, her mother escaped and uh, took my former wife with her. And in these circumstances, I and mean, that was an extreme change. I mean, Czechoslovakia was a pretty tough place. When the wall came down, going back to all these people in America that love communism and it's going to be the answer and all this kind of stuff. When the wall came down, the lifespan in Czechoslovakia was some 10 years lower than the other side of the border. Wow. Bad diet, pollution, and you know, all this kind of stuff. So this stuff needs to be taught at school, as well as the fact that Nazis were baddies, the commies weren't very good either. And I have lots of stories about that. But there's always this challenge, I mean, just in terms of identity before we move on. It's very easy for me, because I was sort of born here, I live here most of the time, and then I go and see the 99% who are far more interesting, and, and generally where I go, the weather's better than it is here anyway, so it's far better abroad. But maybe you tell us about where you were born and where you moved around in some of these 11 countries, and, and, and what on earth identity means to you, or are you, are you a citizen of the world? <laughs> I have this phrase once I picked up from some company's marketing tagline, and I think it's the way I think about it. I try to fit in where I am, but I always will stand out, right? And that's this like balance that you gotta find. So you're right. So. Just on that one, because it's an interesting one, actually, because I feel that I, I don't actually try and fit in, but I always stood out, that there's two things. So first, there's the chameleon stuff, yes. which is when in Rome be a Roman candle. They used to say that, but now you go to Rome and you insist that you keep, keep being yourself and they change to, to do your ways. But the second thing, is actually, is I think it's a characteristic of founders, entrepreneurs or indies of, of all sorts. They are goats, not sheep. <laughs> and if you're born a goat, it doesn't matter if you stay in the same country forever, let's say you join a big co and you just try and copy everybody else for a couple of years because it's too boring, before you know it, you're still nibbling the grass and you, and you look, but actually you're, you're halfway up a mountain and all, all the sheep have moved over there. So <laughs> I think there is just a, a personal thing as well as a cultural thing there. Yeah, I guess there's going to be some of that, right? There's, and maybe it's that history, right? That's the, the reason I can't really fit in and just get on with the normal life. I, I've only actually really done a a normal job, a real job for a few years, uh, honest job if you may. And my boss back then always told me that, I hope you end up doing something more meaningful than this. <laughs> you're not made for this stuff. It's goats and sheep, you know. <laughs> and if you're born a goat, you're born a goat. If you're born a sheep, you're I born a so. sheep. Yeah. And I think the challenge, genuine challenge that I've seen, is particularly given the sort of fintech boom we've had. And as mentioned, I just reviewed the sort of decade in fintech, so I was thinking about many things. One of which is that when it became trendy and, and when this, the, the existing institutions were doing badly, there were lots of people who, with hindsight, were sheep trying to be goats. Mm. And that is just as tough. In fact, it's, it, it's even worse, really. Because if you're a goat, you, know, you always know you can go to the other side. But if you're a sheep, you can't go off and become a founder if actually you're much better off in a big 
megabank, you know, just taking the paycheck, not worrying so much at night, sleeping and, you know, knowing what next month will hold. So anyway, tell us about your countries then. Let's do the country dimension. So like I said, off Indian heritage, but born in Japan back in the 80s. So were you bilingual? Well, at home, yes. We were taught Hindi and English. Did you pick up much Japanese? We fortunately ended up back in Japan when I was a teenager and I did learn Japanese pretty thoroughly. And it's, it's one of those languages that I always wanted to learn. But we moved around a fair bit. So in the sequence, I think it went Japan, Myanmar, then Burma, Venezuela, very difficult place. But early 80s were all right. Triumph of socialism, I hear, from the Labour Party. Well, back in the 80s, it was actually, uh, from what my brief recollections are as a kid, it used to be this sort of mini Miami. And I think the money was coming in, oil was sort of flowing. The craziness hadn't really started yet, though crime was still rampant. A very short stint in India, Thailand. Um, which part of India? Delhi, which is, I guess, our home. And then some exotic locations like Maldives. And uh, a lot of people think that it was basically running around white sandy beaches and, you know, swimming in the waters. But no, there's, a, you know, life there as well. People have uh, commercial islands where they live. So we were in one of those islands for the Malé, the capital. Very different. Almost no beach on the main island. It's, it's the reclaimed land right to the edge. I actually just went back 20 years later now. And it's sad to see how the corals have almost bleached to white now. It's pretty sad, but it is what it is. Hope we can change that. And then moved around further. So Japan back again, US, UK. My folks moved on to Brazil, Mongolia, Kenya, Panama. So through them, I got exposure to a lot of interesting It sounds places. like I should have been a diplomat because I could have saved all these airfares trying to go to these interesting places on a holiday and I'm just spending the money myself. <laughs> it must be difficult as a kid though, because before you know it, you've got some friends and then six months later, you go off a different nationality, speaking a different language and... Or there's an international circuit of There of is a bit of that, kids. but it's, you know, it's kind of like, it's the only life I'd ever known. So I did not know that there's groups of people are, who kind of grew up in the same place and had the same friends for 12, 14 years. For me, the idea of making new friends every few years was the norm. And it kind of helps me with what I do now, right? I have to break into any new circuit. But the benefits are also you learn a lot about cultures, you learn a lot about languages, the way people do things. And perhaps for me, the reason has always been that any kind of business I want to build, I want to have that international component. I just, I would um, suffocate if I was locked in just one region or one country. Yes. So anyway, so having tried most of the world, <laughs> you're clearly a very intelligent person, clearly a very rational person. And you found that sort of, apart from weather, the best place to be is uh, in, in England and in London doing doing a business, which we'll come on to. But starting at the other end then, so you've been a businessman for quite a while, and your first business you started when you were the same age as Charlie, but Charlie's was slightly better. Yeah, I'll have to give this one to Charlie. I think his business at 16 was probably a lot more off a business and a company, and I think it still runs to some extent. Which, for those people who didn't listen to last week's, they should listen to it, of course, was the student room, which to people my age means next to nothing, but my kids, it probably means quite a lot, actually. Yeah, I think it's the backbone of all education. <laughs> no, mine was very, very crude and simple back in Japan. Which year are we talking now? Just after the 2000 mark. And for us, it was basically things like, you know, I noticed home networking was becoming interesting and everybody wanted to network their computers at home. They had a shared connection. So I just started making a little bit of a, well, it first started as just me providing the service of coming around to people's houses, linking up their home network. And then I guess this is my very first exposure to the word scalability. And I said, it's pointless if I have to go again and again and manually do it. How about if I make a do-it-yourself box and I give people the router and the wires and the instructions. So you're productizing a service. Trying to, and obviously without sort of knowing the, 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 the lingo behind it back in when I was a 16-year-old kid, 
Uh, I remember sitting on my own computer and typing up the instructions and you know making a little box that just happened to be perfect. I wouldn't say it was the world's greatest business, but it gave me an exposure and gave me this sort of sense of freedom, right? I started earning my own pocket money and there was a kind of like, oh, I'm doing this thing which is bigger than just myself. But it also showed me that I do need to learn a few things to really sharpen this up to the next level, therefore the need to go to university. So I ended up going to the US, uh, getting a real education at Lehigh University, where obviously I'm a very proud alumni of. Engineering was my primary degree. Uh, I still love engineering and math. Math has always been a, a nice accompaniment for my whole life. I've always found it as, if all else fails, math always works. But I also studied a fair bit of finance and really trying to understand the business side of it, what does cash flow mean, even you know the simple ideas like you know accounting and stuff, which you, know, if you, you can't really be in business if you unless you understand the sort of base level bedrock of business and then ended up you know for the reasons I had in my head to work for a big company JP Morgan in this case who hired me out of college university worked in New York for a few years earned a rather obscene amount of money for the age that I was at but very hard life and that's how I ended up in the UK with JP Morgan and ironically next to Charlie so there's a full circle for you okay and then so your first business you've done before this arc as you say in Japan and then what was the next? Yeah, and I think the aim then was to do these in a much more proper you know, way, right? Even when the stuff I was doing at 16 wasn't really a company. It was just me out of my bedroom, like, you know, 16-year-old would. But sure, but with hindsight, as you were saying just now, with hindsight, those early experiments are actually very formative. Yes, absolutely, right? There's things you learn. I mean, I, I've always had a, a fancy idea around branding and how much what brand means to some extent, you know, how people can take the same service and if you brand it well, you know, not just for the, the kicks of it, it actually allows you to wrap it around as an offering that people can relate to. And brand is in a way, I mean, just connecting these dimensions, brand is a kind of culture, isn't it? It is. It is a sense of establishing your values, what you stand for. I mean, it's obviously improved for me as I've kind of grown up over the years, but even at AIR, this is one of the things we talk a lot about. If I actually went to the extreme end of writing a book for the company in the early days about the kind of company we want to be, the values we're going to have, the decisions we're going to make. It's a book that not anybody outside of AIR is allowed to see. It's a little bit of an internal thing only, but for me, it's an extension of brand and values and how you think and how you behave. Absolutely. And as I referred to before, something I'll come back in a later podcast this year, no doubt, Aristotle was the first person to look at uh, governance and he spoke about written rules and unwritten rules and all this kind of stuff, but he placed great emphasis on ethics, a different word for for culture and as we're talking before in terms of various businesses in various companies countries times the one thing which is a kind of glue for any society is a commonality of ethics culture you name it yeah and you know for me the exposure and sort of getting into one of the things we wanted to talk about i i was very fortunate with the first business i the real company let's say that i started when I was based here in London. In Is this pre-JPM or after After JPM, 2007, 2008 timeframe. Well, the very first company was an attempt to build a better browser. That properly tanked in about six, seven months. You know, and back then also the mobile ecosystem was so different. You know, the iPhone had just sort of come out. Android wasn't really a big thing. Nokia was obviously a big player. There was all these other things like Kyocera phones and Symbian devices. BlackBerry was actually one of still the biggest performers. But, you know, it was also there was two things to it, right? I was 24 and I didn't probably have the, the mental capacity to think through the steps that I had to go through to build a global mobile browser and the complexity underneath that. So with hindsight, as you say, you underestimated the, the technical complexity. The ecosystem meant that for anybody to do a browser for all those things would have been next to impossible. And then actually the way the market developed 
it became, I don't know, pretty much a duopoly, triopoly or something like that. You know, you've got Apple and it's Safari and you've got Google and it's Chrome and, and, and okay, there's Firefox and, and one or two other things. But it was a market, the structure of which was going to rapidly change and squeeze out anybody else anyway, even if you'd done it well. And going back to the people I've come across over the years who've not been successful, I mean, it's very, you know, it's, one can't really do a sort of a long podcast with people who haven't been successful because normally it's sort of something fairly simple. It's a bit like a Greek tragedy, which the sort of the, the flaw in the rock was there in the beginning and then the pressure comes and the, and the rock crumbles in a predictable way. Correct. And I think there's this challenges where you have to respect which ecosystem is ready to accept a new entrant. And if you are going to be that new force that's going to enter an ecosystem and establish your own place, the game of chess you have to play has to be slightly unusual. Whatever the sector is, you will have two, three large companies who are ruling the entire market and you're trying to be the fourth. Whatever the story is, I started recognizing what strategy meant. You know, as a kid, it used to be, oh, strategy is this buzzword. It doesn't mean anything. It's all about product and math and like, as long as you can power your way through it. But I realized why strategy actually makes a difference and not to be discounted. People use words like, I don't know, capitalism or socialism or strategy as if it was a thing and we all know what it is. But actually, it's just kind of like if you draw a sort of Venn circle, people do put completely different things into it, you know. People who are, quote, socialist think that capitalism is bad. People who are, quote, capitalist think it's good. And, and they define it in many different ways. And given that I spoke to 80 entrepreneurs, interviewed 80 entrepreneurs for the book, I ended up, especially on the strategy, with some wildly different perspectives that people who are very successful and in successful businesses had. Some would say, no, strategy is for the board. Some would say, oh, no, strategy is not for the board, not for those people. Good God. <laughs> Some would say, there's no such thing as strategy. It's just what evolves over time. And so all these are different perspectives. And it occurred to me that one of the reasons they're different perspectives is what I came to call personal dictionary. We all act as if we use the same words in exactly the same way. But having hosted a bunch of children over Christmas, I can tell you they all use the word capitalism in a different way. <laughs> and, and socialism and all, the, all this kind of stuff. So strategy. When you say strategy... Uh, don't give me a university textbook thing, or you can if you like. I don't even know the university textbook answer. <laughs> what is strategy then? I mean, it's the kind of thing we all think we know, but it's a bit like you're having a relationship. You're married or something. Oh, you've got a relationship. Oh, we all know what relationship's like. Well, actually, you try being married for 10 or 20 years, and you find that maybe you didn't have precisely the same concept. I think it's a good point, right? So I, I sort of think about it as a game of chess, and I'm like, you know, everybody knows the end game isn't to get a draw or to lose. It is to win, at least in a game of chess, right? But... There are always your particular ways of what you're going to make as moves, right? Some people are biased to having certain moves. So accounting for your own biases, how are you going to play this game of chess and how are you going to help others who are watching you or playing alongside you relate to it so that you'll get to the same conclusion you want, which is in this case to win. And there will always be certain, like my strategy for building Air or any other company that I'm part of will be slightly different than somebody else. It is possible we both of us might end up reaching the same conclusion, which is it's hard to do because you can't build the same company twice in parallel. Uh, and you see this again and again, right? Elon has a certain way of building that company, Tesla. So there's almost style you're talking about. There's a style and there's a decision-making framework and how you solve certain forks in the road and certain choices which are your true north, certain you know preferences you're going to make because that sort of adds up to your strategy. And obviously, there's the arc over top of it that we want to build this first, and we want to build this. In game of chess, I want to make sure I take out the horses of my opponent first, and then through that, I'm going to work to the bishops, whatever, right? That's the angle of attack you're building. But to get there, each of us will have slightly different approaches. So taking a practical example then, I mean, I think one thing which is very useful in all these conversations that has occurred to me over the last 10 months of speaking to people, 
And Jordan Peterson said it actually about, he said, if you're having an argument with your significant other, the worst possible thing you can do is generalise. Yeah. You're lazy, you're always lazy, is a good way to keep an argument going and get everybody upset and offended. What you want to do is to drill down to the lowest level of, that's the second time you've thrown a wet towel in the bathroom and left it. When you do that, I feel unhappy. That's the, actually, that's the actual event. Now, going back to all this capitalism and socialism, because it's sort of very fashionable. I mean, fortunately, communism and socialism has got fended off for the moment over here, but it's very contemporary in America in the sort of democratic primaries. You know, what are their values? What are their approaches uh, going forward? In terms of all these 20-somethings I was hosting and speaking to, they would say, oh, you know, socialism's the answer, and oh, capitalism is bad. If you get stuck at that level, you never have a proper conversation. So you can say, OK, you're not allowed to use the word capitalism. Mm. What goes on in the world that upsets you? Oh, what goes on in the world is that, you know, Coca-Cola doesn't care about the fact that its products make everybody obese around the world and is really bad for the health. Oh, yeah, no, I don't like that either. And you actually find that the, the lowest level phenomena, there's a huge measure of, of, of agreement uh, at that kind of level. So if we're going to take the case of strategy, we're not allowed to use the word strategy, is your guide to the culture ethos of air, is that a strategy or tactic? There is another sort of ideology that people talk about, right? The idea that culture is always going to be stronger than strategy. Is that something separate from strategy? Is it a tactic or...? And that's what the thing is. I believe if you get your culture right, your strategy gets created on the back of that perfectly well, right? And I think the idea that you have to have these two things, one is culture, one is strategy, is almost a sign of weakness that the company didn't get either of them right. But at heart, they should be really intertwined from day in. You know, people should know why they're here, what's the purpose. And it guides a hundred micro decisions a person has to make over the course of the day. The CEO can make only certain decisions. At every level, people are making decisions about what is the kind of uh, paper we're going to order on which we're going to print our letterhead. Right? Yes, absolutely. And it's a kind of coherence. It's a bit like you've got iron filings on a table. If you stick a magnet under, they'll tend to line up. And this is the sort of postmodern dilemma or the multicultural dilemma. I mean, multicultural is a very strange word. I think it really means multiracial or multiethnic because, in a way, you have to have one culture. You have to point in one direction. And it isn't a question that my iron filings are pointing northwest, yours are pointing northeast. It's not a question of good or bad. You've lived in all these countries. I'm sure you could do a very good spreadsheet about good things about all the countries, bad things about all the countries. The point is, it's just a way that people go about things. So f we were talking before about bankruptcy. Yes. We were talking about the fact that in America, it's just a business technique and everyone accepts it. Okay, well, let's forget absolute arguments about whether that's a good or bad cultural thing. They do, so there we go. So Trump's gone bust six times, everyone goes bust, no one takes it personally, they learn from things. Whereas in the UK, there's still a stigma around going bankrupt, which I attribute to the fact that for centuries, millennia, paying your debts was essential. If you didn't pay your debts to anybody, and wrapping yourself in a company is just a sort of little sort of twist. It doesn't change the ethics of it. You and your family end up in debtors' prison. So there's still quite a reluctance over here. And then if you go to other countries in cultures, Germany or France or Italy, they've got their own, their own approaches again. So I think what, this is one of the things about this multicultural. I think you've almost been philosophical about it. It's a little bit of a silly word. It really means multi-ethnic. Despite what you see in the media, based on all the surveys and studies I've seen, this is one of the most tolerant countries in the world. Not perfectly tolerant. Darn sight tolerant than, than more oh, others. Yeah. But the point is, going back to business, you have to have one culture. My word is my bond, for example. When I join the city, my word is my bond. I still try and live by that. And that's something that's sort of very common in many countries. But other countries like America is a good example. It's you know, what's in the legal agreement. It's not a question of right or wrong. You know, they look at it very legalistically. Well, I think there's one more thing here, right? So a company 
is a shorter duration. Let's say a relatively young company, you still have the founders, the early people there, and they can kind of go back and clean confusions, answer those sort of fuzzy questions. Whereas in the country aspect, the founding fathers, if you take the American example, the founding fathers had X vision, and now 250 years onwards, you know, it gets misplaced a little bit, and then you get sort of these hard truths people start hanging on to. But you're right, underneath it, the aim is the same, right? We, we care about liberty, we care about freedom. But it's this pull and push, and I think the time aspect has unfortunately really caused a lot of distortion for countries, and same applies here. You see this happening all across the place. So, yeah, it's a fascinating study, right? I mean, culture, uh, you know, I travel a lot for work. I travel a lot from a personal perspective. It's, it's absolutely fascinating hearing and talking to the average person. I think taxi drivers are any country in the world. I mean, sometimes it's hard to talk to them because maybe language issues, but it's just the stuff they've gone through, their story and their journey into usually a big city, in many cases coming from rural backgrounds, what is it that they aspired for? Why is it not working for them? Is it working for them? Anyway, that's stuff that I get excited about. Yes, exactly. And you make a good point there. You can't actually compare companies and, and countries, although the uh, genesis of companies was leading on from guilds, and guilds and then companies were seen as small states and small societies, and therefore the governance was of a very similar nature to the country as a whole. However, it's a bit like Singapore as an example, or Athens as a city-state. In a small state, you can have and enforce a pretty strong coherence. Once you get a vast company, I can't think of an example of one vast enough, but actually, no, I'll give an example. Uh, a lot of the mega banks, uh, I remember hearing 20 years ago, their franchises was the way it's put to me. Yeah. You know, you're franchises and managing director and you've got your own little empire within it and blah, 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 blah. And, but where it breaks down is that, using the word multicultural this way, this country has always been multicultural. So, for example, Disraeli wrote this famous novel whose name escapes me in the 19th century. He was one of the big PMs in the 19th century, along with Gladstone, talking about the two nations, which has been revived. And Disraeli is always seen as the originator of one nation Toryism. No, no, he was saying the opposite. He said there are two nations. They live different lives. The aristocracy have got this life and this culture, and the working proletariat have got this. And he said we should bind them with patriotism, which is a bit like, exactly like, actually, what Boris is doing now is trying to stick the two together. So it's always multicultural, and again, politically, so you always got the, the Liberal Party, I was reading over Christmas, the Whigs and the Liberals did so much social change in the 19th century, I was really surprised. The first Factories Acts about stopping kids going chimneys were early in the 19th century. All the evolution of pensions, yeah. social security, which the Labour take credit for, these were Liberals, the, the old-fashioned 19th century Liberals. And I think the one thing I get from the England and the UK, which is not transferable to companies and is probably to be avoided, although it occurs in companies, is that one thing the British are good at is muddling through. Because it's always been a muddle. And there have always been virulent disagreements over everything. And it's always been a bit of a bloody mess. The First World War was a mess. I was hearing about that, Simon Heffer's talking about that the other day. The Second World War was a mess. It was, by the grace of God, everything's been a mess. Last year was a mess with Brexit. <laughs> so somehow there's a bit of a mess and we sort of managed to pull our way, which again is a, is a cultural thing that you don't have to do in companies. But again, companies... I mean, air is still at a relatively small scale compared to the J.P. Morgans of the world. Companies have always been multicultural. The culture of a salesman is different from the culture of a trader is different from the culture in finance. You know, it's, it's binding these things together. It goes together. further. Sometimes even your geographies, and despite you trying to believe... So my second company, if you may, before air, we were split between the U.K. and China. And that was interesting because despite a lot of communication, a lot of back and forth, and trying to believe in the same things culturally, just subtle things, the way people work, the way people, you know, the one I used to love is, you know, when we used to go to a meeting, for example, in the UK, 
it was actually seen as cool and sexy to be seen as a small startup. You're kind of nimble and crafty and you can get through things. In China, it was working against us. You almost didn't want to be seen as small and nimble because you'd be useless. And I remember to some extent, people who were in similar situations like us, they used to hire teams of people to go with them. Assistants would come along because it kind of be seen as, oh, the company's big enough that they have an assistant looking after the managing director. In the UK, a startup that hires an assistant is looked down upon and be like, oh, they're wasting their money hiring assistants. Like, it's a subtle cultural differences coming from geography. And if you take that further, it's coming from their local understanding. Absolutely. And, um, and, and as you say, ge- geography. So I know a little bit about Chinese. I mean, sort of being a <laughs> disciple of a Chinese master and being an instructor in various Chinese arts. Not actively at the moment. The geography plays a huge part. China's a vast country. To make any impact, an enormous scale. We're a tiny little country of utter irrelevance, apart from being nimble and <laughs> moving with the times and, and trying to go in the EU, see how can go out the EU, try this, try that. You know. So, uh, yes, a lot of it come, culture comes from the geography. So this, which is your third business and your second company, what was, what was this one and what was this one doing, then, the, the UK-China one? Oh, it, was, uh, it started with all kinds of things we could do because our first company, the browser company, which for me technically is the second company, failed spectacularly, and then we had to figure out how to recover our money and uh, we ended up doing a bunch of things in e-commerce and doing a bunch of work for other people and consulting. You know, we were still young, so we were putting our hands on every pie that we could put our hands on. But over the course of six years, we sharpened it up, again, without using the word strategy, kind of cleaned up our game, cleaned up our act, and became somewhat relevant in the space of e-commerce, especially within sort of large-ticket e-commerce, so automotives and cars, high-end electronics, supporting those companies that sold these things to get better analytics, better data. But the fund was always trying to build a business that had a partial European heritage, UK maybe, and a partial Asian-Chinese heritage. And the cultural clashes or the regional clashes and localization and brand, you know, in, in, you know the company was called Fabricate in the UK, but in China, we actually had to come up with a Chinese name, Fake He, which had its own sort of you know, letters and kanji. So uh, it's fun learning these things when you're young, and we didn't have the money to hire consultants to train us and brief us on this. So it was us going against the world and trying and failing. Yes, and, and the other thing there, it, you know, I'm reminded slightly of the browser, which is that with some hindsight or some knowledge of, of China, you're kind of, ah, oh, we're going to do this business, and we're going to kick into the wind. <laughs> Because there ain't many examples of any company of any scale from outside China being successful in China. I can't actually think of one. So you've chosen a, a sticky wicket there. And again, and I think this is one reason that the British were very good at the multiculturalism stuff, because the British were genuinely interested in all these other countries. But there was one thing from a, an emperor, I think Ming Emperor of the 19th century, when Britain was at its height. When Britain was at its most powerful. And anyway, let's not talk about the opium wars, it's the whole thing entirely. The academic thinking is even changing on those. But basically, the emperor said to the ambassador, What could we of the Middle Kingdom possibly learn from people like you? That was their attitude. And they were culturally very homogeneous and stuck together, which is why they were never colonized in the slightest. Okay, we'll come back to that in a second. They were never colonised by any of the European powers. When, they think, when I say colonised, okay, there were little French quarters in Shanghai and all that kind of stuff in Hong Kong. Spheres of influence. Exactly, but they basically did their own thing. On the other hand, there was no India when the East India Company and all that arrived. There were, whatever, 4,000 languages and 3,000 religions. And one reason that India was always colonised very easily by sort of almost everybody is that the troops didn't mind who they fought for. 
they didn't really identify with this thing called India. They'd fight over oh, the Maratas, the English, the Mughals, a bit of money here, a bit of money there, and all that kind of stuff. So, yes, being successful in China is a tough one. So, moving on to air, being successful in China is next to impossible. <laughs> I've been in the city for over 30 years. I've seen lots of banks move to America and try and be successful over there, and, and lots of fintechs at the moment. And again, it's not as difficult as the China question, but if you ask me to sort of save the world and I had one minute to name three UK companies that have been successful in America, I'd start sweating with only one minute. It's been very hard for UK companies to be successful in America. And again, there is a cultural divide. When I started at Climax, I thought UK and US, they're pretty similar. Japan, there's very, very different. And I found over time that actually I found the Japanese more sympathetic to how I felt and saw things than the, the American approach, which was sort of more different. Well, so here's maybe where it fits in, right? So the fit in standout. I am not your typical British entrepreneur. I was fortunate enough. You even sound like an American, which must be good, you see. Yeah, so maybe this is where all of those roads and dots kind of link up and come together. So I've had, fortunately, a lot of exposure to the U.S. economy and, you know, lived there, worked there professionally, still have very good contacts. And I've always known for what we're building here in the U.K., Air needs to make sure that we win in the U.S. market. We cannot be a global company without getting the U.S. sorted. But you're right. There is a graveyard of companies that tried to go to the U.S. How hard can it be? How hard can it be? And I think there's so many layers to this question, right? First of all, U.S. is not one, com- one country, right? I think, yes, there's 50 states, but underneath that, there's still about six or seven regional groups or countries, if you may. And you've got to respect each of them. The East Coast is different than the Northeast, and it's different than the Midwest and the South. And A, that adjustment is going to be one. B, and I think this is where a lot of people often mistake, is the idea that Oh, it's all English-speaking. It's just the same thing, right? Maybe you change the Z A lot of Spanish-speaking these days. Oh, there's a, a bit of that as well. And I think it oversimplifies the idea that UK to US is just a little bit of langu- language localization. There is a significant amount of localization that it still has to go in. Most, most, most importantly, you cannot go to the US under-resourced. You have to really have your coffers full. You really need to understand. It's a bit like China. It's not as big as China, but it's huge. Exactly. It's huge. You need to have a good amount of firepower, whether it's money, whether it's resource, whether it's time and energy. And I would say the other thing is, you know, people like me, whether it's the founder or the initial team, need to be willing to put in the legwork. You cannot sit here pretty in your UKHQ, kind of running things on a remote control. So... And obviously, there's going to be a lot more things underneath that. But I can tell you, most of the founders that I end up sitting across with who are in the same boats, often we sit in the same planes together. These are the challenges you have to encounter. You cannot take it for granted. Right. Well, we'll come on to uh, in a minute and hear a little bit more about them when we can continue this thing here. But listening to you talk, and again, thinking back to the 80s, the end of the, sort of the post-imperial Britain with the merchant banks, certainly a considerable amount of time was spent understanding the local cultures. Mm. The guy that did the Middle East had been going there for 15 years. I went to Japan every year, uh, once or twice for, I don't know, about eight years in a row or something like that, and was even just only then starting to scratch the surface. So the globalization, which is kind of what you're trying to do for many of the fintechs, Charlie's in four countries, for many of the fintechs, the next frontier is definitely now getting more global. So the ones that have been relatively successful in the UK, which again, is a smaller number than it might be. There are two types of globalization. There's the old-fashioned globalization. There's the sort of kind of almost authentic deep one, 
which I'm talking about, which is that you really understand the culture. You know, you don't go to the Middle East and behave in the same ways you do in Japan. And you need people who really understand the Middle East to help you in the Middle East and you know, in Japan. You, you've got the benefit that you've lived in these places, so you know it. You're kind of multilingual almost in terms of speaking American and speaking English, and you, you know how things are, are different. So that's one type of globalisation, which I think is almost the predominant one. But then there's a different type of globalisation, which is a bit like your Android stuff, which is super tech stuff. Mm. Like, oh, forget the culture. It's an Android phone. It's an iPhone. iPhone isn't very localised. We sort of can, can, can sell that. So let's just touch on those two types of globalisation and how you see it as somebody that is global and has been working global and has a global business. The localisation versus, ah, oh, no, 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 we'll sell them iPhones everywhere. I guess it comes down to the kind of product you're building, right? There are some products, and you're very fortunate, where the technology just can trump everything else. And maybe that comes back to the Android equation. Yeah, there's a surface level of localization of language and all that, but largely, this is the product, this is how it works, take it or leave it, small adaptations. Fortunately or unfortunately, when you're working in fintech, the fin part is more stronger than the tech often as a pressure point. And that means there's regulation, there's customer behavior, consumer expectations, talk about ethics, getting sued, lawsuits, so many layers of complexity that come up. And amongst all the fintech founders you've talked to, I think the word regulation often creates more of a challenge. And, you know, if you've done well, and I think this is where some people misconstrue what regulation is, I think done well, regulation is actually an asset. And I think for a lot of UK companies coming out, we have a very, very good regulator here, the FCA, and I think the PRA as well. And that should be something that we actually learn from because speaking to regulators around the world, I often see them looking at our regulators trying to learn from them. Yes, I thrashed this one to death in the previous episode with Charlie, so I'm not going <laughs> to thrash it again. There is a lot in what you say, but going forward, as an independent nation going forward, we need to get out of this EU mentality of having regulation which is five billion paragraphs wrong. We need simple, strong, clear regulation which makes it easier for everybody. Otherwise, the game of fintech becomes dealing with regulators. The game of FS is entirely created by law, by statute, by regulation. Money is controlled, regulated by that. So I agree with you. And going forward, I really hope it's going to be simpler and we get more back to 19th century Britain where you have simple, clear rules. But anyway, let's carry on with the, the, the US thing in a second. But let, before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all the listeners out there and my brand partners of the podcast, Smart Pension, who are fast, secure and free. Check out their UK workplace pensions at autoenrolment.co.uk. So, Anish, talking about America, Air is in the UK and in the US? That's right. And you are one of the hats that you're quite happy wearing is American hat, and you fit in very nicely. Having universityed over there, you say you need sort of appropriate critical mass, you need to understand that it is not just one country, but it's quite regional, and all that jazz, and that fintech is highly localised in terms of the regulations in the country, and you don't want to upset the US regulators, and you don't want to upset the UK regulators, and you don't want to upset the Chinese regulators. So before you tell us more about AIR, for UK fintechs as a whole, you've got significantly more cultural experience than almost all the founders. What kind of factors should they be bearing in mind for trying to get into the US beyond having the appropriate resources and understanding that's sort of geographical? What have you learned from doing a business that you didn't know when you were a student? I think one of the things, and it's, it's actually a Japanese word, which I have absolutely loved and we've made it a big part of our life here. It's called a Genshi Gambutsu. And what it means, it translates to, is to really understand something, you got to get out of the meeting room and get down to the factory floor. It's a Toyota manufacturing equivalent. But in this context, and I know it's hard for founders to do, try to get down to the U.S. and not just take a flight in and hang out at the airport and go to the urban cities. If your product is going to be used in non-urban America, drive there, drive through the countryside, 
It is eye-opening when you start seeing what happens there, how people use their phones, what kind of phones they're using, the language they use, the way they behave, the way they get their information. And I, I actually love driving in the US. The roads are bigger, so it's easy to drive. It is fascinating. And when I take my team down as well, there are opportunities for us where we could fly between two cities which are relatively close, or you could take a three-hour drive. Now, I know it's not the most time-effective way of using your time. However, that three-hour drive, the things you will learn, the malls you will stop at, the places you will eat, it gives you this amazing deep perspective. So that's one that I, I think a lot of people in the interest of being time efficient and you know, pretending to be busy as founders, they miss. And as a result, your strategy, your game plan, your chessboard, whatever you call it after that, really is built with incomplete data. You need to get down on the ground. So that's one really, really important one. And the other thing is I think you need to hire well in the first few people you hire. I've met a number of founders who hire, you know, relatively young. Okay, I get that. There's nothing wrong with that. But then what they are kind of projecting out is that our U.S. expansion is going to be driven by this 23-year-old kid. Now, it could be that the kid is a genius. Nothing wrong with that. But largely, you're also saying to the American market, this is the value of the American market to us. We're going to hire somebody who's you know, relatively green in their game. They don't understand fintech. They don't understand regulation. They've never been through that. So hiring well, especially your first few employees, is really important. And on that hiring point, again, it's a whole other dimension, but to understand the culture is really important because the fact that the word sounds similar to the words you heard in your dictionary isn't the point. You need to be able to read an American or read a Japanese or read a British body language. And there's, there's a whole level of that, uh, again, which often for the naive people who haven't had your international experience is easy to gloss over. Right, okay, so Air, let's wrap up with Air. Air, I've known about for quite some time. How you guys have managed to avoid me, I don't know. No doubt it's my complete incompetence, as usual, which is the answer to most things in life. Air, I remember as you're one of the very few who are spectacularly successful from the Barclays Accelerator, one of the, the early cohort. Many people have recommended you guys over the years to me. For listeners who, for some strange reason, haven't heard of Air or perhaps more likely have heard, and like most names, it sort of goes in one ear and out the other. can't quite remember. What is it that Air do? So we're trying to be what I think is timely of, of being a modern credit reference bureau, one that is built around the consumer needs, one that in fact leans towards the consumer. Because ultimately, the way I describe it is this mission statement that we've written, you know, we want to help people enable access to credit. So your customers are individuals or businesses? Well, they're obviously individuals because it's consumer credit, but the businesses are a key component of being able to take our data and use it. But the flip is also quite important, which is we want to ensure that we're not pushing consumers into the burden of debt. And for a credit reference bureau to be able to say, enable credit, stop debt, that sort of dichotomy is really important for us. And that in kind of wraps up our mission, right? We are doing things where we're helping you open up doors where you've typically been excluded. But also, if you do have a line of credit, we're trying to understand how are we ensuring that you're not going to go over the cliff? How can we put in detection early enough that we understand, hey, you're entering financial distress. There's something that needs to be done about the situation. So at a very simple level, how would I use Air if I started using Air tomorrow, directly or in, and or indirectly? So that's a really good part, right? Because you, for the first time, actually have control and the ability to drive some of how our profile is built. Typically, the traditional way a credit profile or credit score was built, you're almost cut out. And what we said is, no, the consumer needs to be in the mix. So for example, just keeping it really simple so people understand, I go and try and buy a car tomorrow, and they sort of take some details, and they come back and say, oh no, sorry, so we can't lend you yes. 100 grand. And I go, that's sad. And they say, the computer says no. 
That's the traditional model you're referring to. That's correct. And you were almost cut out in how the decision was made. You have no idea what went into it. It's a black box to some extent. Flip that around and say, look, communications, connectivity, you, your smartphone, are allowed to get in touch at the point of decision. How about we turn the dial to you and say, hey, Mike, help us understand your situation. Help us understand your profile. So we champion this idea of what we call first party data, which is the consumer is the only one who can truly represent yourself. And if you can do that, the profile that we build is much richer, much more accurate. And it doesn't mean you always get credit, but it does mean the shot that you're getting is the best shot. So would it be, I presume it isn't, but anyway, so I now go along to BMW and say, oh, I know you turned me down yesterday, but I've got this lovely app on my phone. It's called Air App. And I've spoken to them and they say I'm okay. Or does Air have to sell to BMW? So it has to be both ways. BMW Financial Services also needs to participate and understand that, yes, they can accept this data. Um, part of that is for us to also ensure from a regulatory perspective that data is proper, it's matched correctly, doesn't create a bias. But you as a consumer also need to be involved. And I think this is interesting because the market for the first time is starting to see, hold on, this is a two-sided place. The consumer is involved and the lender is involved. It's not only a lender game. And therefore, it's also part of the need for us is now to say, okay, look, in the UK and the US, we've got a lot of the lenders working with us, whether it's you know, Toyota and N. Brown and all these major banks. But also, what's really important now, and therefore my ask is, how do I ask consumers to come and work with us, volunteer with us? And some of this is simple things like help us in the research we're doing. There's still so many problems we want to solve within the world of credit, stopping the burden of debt. Come, engage with us, participate in our research trials. I think these will help build a better system for everybody out there. Good. Okay, so that's nice and clear. So in terms of 2020 and the 2020s, if you get to where you want to go to by 2030, which seems quite a long way away at the moment, what do you need more of, Anish? And what do you want to give shout-outs for in case the listeners to this podcast actually have it? So for us, obviously, it's expanding the geography. So what we've done in the UK was great. We were very fortunate that we got the right support in the early days. We've taken the roadshow out to the US. That's great. It's an important market. I do want to get us out to the emerging markets where the need is probably even more acute, as you can imagine, places like Brazil or India. And then the flip is always going to be true, right? We need support, whether it's from a media perspective, whether it's from a regulatory perspective, but most importantly, from the consumer perspective. We want to see consumers who help us understand the problems they're having, how through research we can solve some of these things. And you know, ultimately, we need consumers to trust us. You know, we're very respectful with their data, the ethics, the, the governance that goes into our models. And that dialogue is important. We want consumers to come and tell us these are the concerns they're having and help us refine and build the system together. And what's in it for the consumers? Well, ultimately, they get the best shot, right? Access to finance in a true way. And more importantly, it's something that doesn't overburden them. So your target area is those people who are having challenges around credit at the moment because somebody like me who turns up at BMW and say, sure, there you go, there's, there's the credit, I don't need to engage. People who, who can't get it, it's in their interest. That's one starting block, but as you see, the world expands really fast right from there. So people who are new to credit, people who are expanding the horizon, and also like, who is to say what you're getting at BMW is the best thing? Better analysis can give you better offers and better outcomes, right? I've chosen a bad example with BMW, because with BMW, the trick, uh, all these sort of various discounts they hide, the trick is to take out the credit and then um, cancel it the, the same day. <laughs> and I'm not joking, you make two grand. It's some stupid thing, so, you know, it's uh, conflicted in incentives in, in BMW, talking about sort of rubber on the road. No, 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 that's what I did it uh, two years ago. Right, OK, thanks for that, Anish. Uh, time has flown by, it's almost an hour, but we've t- tackled... Uh, 
a fascinating topic here and, and one which is sort of hidden behind on the one hand sort of wokeness which sort of makes a virtue of it or sort of the, the word, worst kind of nationalism where you don't want to speak to the 99% of humanity at all but actually if you strip all that nonsense away we are in a world which is globalising more and more everybody likes travelling everybody is much more accessible to travel when I was born people didn't really travel much in the 60s to other countries now a lot of people do and it's a fascinating world which is evolving both in the tech dimension of sometimes you don't have to localise very much but also in FS or cultural dimensions where you do and it's a bit like sort of water that's sort of swirling around in all directions it's a very sort of fascinating thing especially as I say that I wonder whether by the time this comes out maybe we will have left the EU or not have (laughs) left the EU and therefore for this country above all others we do need entrepreneurs like you creating businesses regardless of where they come from the world but at the same time my parents generation knows if you let millions and millions of people in then the queue for doctors goes up to three months and that generates pushback so good luck to Boris squaring that circle and I hope we managed to keep you based here Anish and you, you don't wander off to the uh, Maldives to open up the Mali office. I hear the coral is not so good these days anyway. Thank you for having me here and I hope I catch up in the 2030s with you. Thanks for listening. If you have consulting, advisory slash non-exec or media needs in the FS or fintech space, get in touch with me at mike at londonfintechpodcast.com. We could sit in a vendor all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance we could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride To come away from the city I'm so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city But with the faces so gray With the pain of the Watch the firelight dance with me, watch the firelight